this is the conclusion of a novel in which the narrator is um, unreliable. Characters at the edges and on the edge. Remaining a perpetual possibility. Lonely, violent, deeply American life. Only in a world of speculation. True ease in writing comes from art, not chance. Very fine is my Valentine. Very fine and very mine. You're listening to the Grand Podcast Abyss with John Pistelli. Great and puffed up with his retinue. everybody you're listening to the grand podcast abyss i'm your co-host john pastelli here with the painter of modern life sam worthington sam how are you doing today i'm well john i'm patiently awaiting the day when everything however would always end most happily with a lazy and rapturous transition to art ah nice courtesy of the the nameless protagonist if we could even call him that of fyodor dostoyevsky's Notes from Underground. Mm-hmm. Um, Great novella. A manic, but also deceptively wise, 140-page novella. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, the man was a, a great, if not the greatest, Russian writer. And this work and ideas surrounding this work were on your mind this week. So, oh. Why don't you why don't you tell us about them and in specific, you know, I was going on I was going on the Tumblr, I was going on the Grand Hotel Abyss Tumblr. It's as as regular as oatmeal for me. You know, it's a, <laughs> it's, a it's a daily provision. Um checking in checking in on the ideas two years before they're realized by by others. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Whether I agree with them or not, you know. Fair. I don't always agree with them. Because it in essence and in truth, we are Democrats. Yes, we are Democrats. <laughs> small, small D. And this is a this is a small D Democratic show, right? And uh, a big D Democratic show. If I get too excited, but <laughs> <laughs> that tends to happen. And you can stay tuned for that. And um, no, I respect it. The Democrats are tough. The Democrats are smart. Um, <laughs> it's happening. Sam. It's happening. <laughs> so, so. So uh, deceptive too. They they feign. They make people think they're not smart. That's part of the reason why they're uh-huh. they they have a timorous or meek appearance, which right. allows them to have space and cover for really well executed power dynamics behind the scenes. So it's right. nice. It's actually very Machiavellian. Mm-hmm. Um. Anyway, the fuck do I know about Machiavelli? What the fuck do I know about anything? Would be a refrain you might hear in notes from underground. And John, you wrote on the Tumblr. <laughs> you, I'm sorry. You, you wrote you wrote on the Tumblr uh, blog post yesterday um, about this novel and where it fits in the context. Can I read what you wrote? Would you like to read it or? Yeah. Well, um, so I've I've been interested in the Tumblr and just charting uh, in the last week or so the. The cultural fallout from the the war in Ukraine that we've been discussing, and the way that different Western perceptions of Russian culture have played into this, and I did a post this morning where I kind of took off from a joking tweet about from somebody or other. I don't even know who this person is. Yoshimi battles a Xiaofenhong. Yes, that must be a reference to uh, Anisa Yoshimi. <laughs> that must be a reference to. <laughs> 
one of these animes. Um, but, dorks? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, uh, weeb, I think, is the word. Um, but this person <clears throat> typologized the five modern forms of Orientalism. And uh, now Orientalism is a is what that's very hot. Sorry to interrupt, but that's a hot just for context. That's a hot literary critical word. Right. I think what this person means is a certain kind of exotic, in this case, a positive exotification of Eastern cultures. Okay. And one of my themes that I've been looking at in the last couple of weeks is the way in which Russia is regarded as not a Western power, but an Eastern power in the eyes of the West. And um, and this person included Russia as one of the five modern forms of Orientalism. So the first one was 80s Japan is my soul. I want to die listening to city pop. So that's your like anime loving uh, person. And then we have other ones. Techno utopian China can give me a state mandated GF. That's your like right wing lover of China. Mm-hmm. Return to Islam with guns, your Islamic fundamentalist. And uh, this is kind of funny. I will kidnap a beautiful Korean man. So those are your K-pop stands. Kind of, um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, but number two is I'm a Slav pilled Doomer Gopnik drinking vodka alone. Mm. And I said, you know, to be honest, uh, that that of these five is kind of in my in my repertoire, uh, and I, I link that to the idea that novelists have traditionally tended to have this reverence for Russian literature, which often spills into a sometimes florid appreciation of Russian culture, mm-hmm. as when Virginia Woolf said, and I, I quote this in my essay on Notes from Underground, that the soul is the main character in Russian literature. Well, I had a good friend take me to a Russian tea house in Chicago one time. And it was wonderful. And I asked him, why why did you take me here? And he said, oh, because I'm a Slavophile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Um, and I'm a little bit of a Slavophile. I took a class in college called Madness and Mad Men in Russian Culture. Mm-hmm. And it was taught by a brilliant Russian scholar. Um, but he would always say his refrain was about um, he he sort of brought madness into every theme of Russian culture. So mm-hmm. really, the the title of the course was almost redundant for him. And so he would always say of both the characters and the authors and artists we were looking at in the class, he is genius, but he is also mad. Right. <laughs> um, and you know we read Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and everything. Um, and the quote I went with on my Tumblr was from J.M. Kotsia's, uh weird semi-novel, Diary of a Bad Year, which mm-hmm. is about so J.M. Coetzee, John Maxwell Coetzee, the South African-turned-Australian novelist. This is one of his lesser-known books, Diary of a Bad Year. And it, it's a, it's, it is what it sounds like. It's the diary of a Coetzee-like novelist. Okay. And this is how he ends... Well, if you've read it, there's three different texts running simultaneously. One of them is by like this woman mm-hmm. he's having an affair with. One of them is by her boyfriend. A very strange book. But here's how the part, the part of the novel narrated by the Coetzee-like narrator ends. Mm-hmm. And one is thankful to Russia too, Mother Russia, 
for setting before us with such indisputable certainty the standards toward which any serious novelist must toil, even if without the faintest chance of getting there, the standard of the master Tolstoy on the one hand and of the master Dostoevsky on the other. By their example, one becomes a better artist. And by better, I do not mean more skillful, but ethically better. They annihilate one's impurer pretensions. They clear one's eyesight. They fortify one's arm. So how did you respond to that quote? Um, well, I didn't really respond. I just gave it as No, a, I mean internally. Oh, inter- well, internally, I, I one sees what he means. There is a kind of... Um, there is a kind of difference between Russian novels and West European novels. And some commenters, particularly D.H. Lawrence, compare the, says in, say, in the 19th century, Russian and American literature are one thing and Western European literature another. Because we well, That's have- interesting because I, I was hearing Hawthorne's vivacity and, and buried irony in in um, notes from underground, yeah, and I was hearing Melville's like, rumbly, bumbly, out of control sort of urban pinball, soaking it all in enjoyment of the of the um, the pure subjectivity of a of a of anonymous concrete spaces, yeah, and and arbitra- seemingly arbitrary like social engagements. Yes. Yeah. So I was hearing Americans in this text. So, right. Yeah. yeah. Lawrence says that uh, French literature is trying to be extreme, but Russian and American literature just is extreme. And extreme by nature. Extreme by nature. And I think- or, or not by nature. Who cares really? Well, I think extreme <laughs> by virtue of both modern Russia and modern America are willfully, rapidly- modernized spaces. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. that's one of the things Notes from Underground is about. Um, I, I, I mentioned in my, the, the novella Notes from Underground is set in Petersburg. And Petersburg is built in the 18th century by Peter the Great as a city that would be the new capital of the modern enlightened Russia. Mm-hmm. And so he builds this city ex nihilo in the north, and he conscripts hundreds and hundreds of serfs to build this city over a swamp. Mm. And you think that's actually not that dissimilar from Washington, D.C., which is also this kind of like Masonic grid built over a fairly swampy territory. So this idea of Russia and America as places that in the modern period became forcibly enlightened, forcibly radically modern, and had to sort of deal with those deracinations. Well, uh, just a, a, a disclaimer, two parts from J. Edgar Hoover's Consciousness and Underworld. Mm-hmm. One, never underestimate the state's um, willingness to act in its own interests. Mm-hmm. Two, never underestimate how much one enemy needs the other enemy to be complete. Yes. Very sage, hidden, not often talked about or contemplated geopolitical logic, right. the necessity of another enemy. Right. And these twin cultures emerging at, at, at a simultaneous time in history yeah. that we can read and pick out through the greatest of their literary genius. Yeah. And forming this kind of pincher around Europe, one in the West and one in the East. DP. Double, yeah. double pincher. Double, double pincher. Okay. <laughs> So you were saying, though, 
you were saying. Um, I think I said it. I think I think that the it's idea, been said. It's been said. Yeah. So to get into the stylistic uh, bounce of this novel, and going off of what you said about Russian difference from Europe yet inextricability. Sure. Um, how about this part in? This is towards the end of the first part of the novel. It's a novel that's in two parts. Mm-hmm. The first is almost a, a a trickster philosophical treatise. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's almost a troll. Yeah. Like a trolling. Yeah, it's like a 40-page shitpost. It's like uh, a shitpost. Yeah. It's like the best shitpost you've ever had. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and this this narrative voice, you can't ever tell if he's being sincere or ironic. Right. There's so many contradictions and opposite emotional expressions that might be back to back in a paragraph that you, if you're not prepared for this sensibility, which is like a, a true artistic sensibility, it can be discombobulating. Yeah. But those who know this terrain know this terrain. It's underground. It's subterranean. Mm-hmm. And those who know, and I think this is probably written for them, right? This, yeah, it's probably the, written for her. Right. There's, I mean, it's funny because he's always addressing, he always says gentlemen, and he he's answering throughout this little philosophical treatise all these anticipated objections. And the people he's imagining <laughs> objecting are like, nor you know, what all these phrases from today, normie, normie libs, like, you know, why mm-hmm. can't you just be normal? You know, why positivists, you, positivists, materialists, Rawlsians, yeah, Rawls, the ballsiest of the Rawlsians. <laughs> <laughs> I used to be a Rawlsian, but now I'm a socialist, <laughs> right? Right, I mean, it's that, kind minus. Of, <laughs> it's that kind of thing that he has this contempt for, this simplistic. Uh, so maybe him and William James wouldn't get along. No, they probably would. Willie, William J, Willie James J was might. a cool ass motherfucker. But maybe not William James's followers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe not his dumb acolytes. Right. That's like Derrida. You love the man, but you despise his acolytes. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'm just going to read this paragraph. Mm-hmm. And then you stop me. I'm going to kind of go into this because okay. I think this is a, this sets off everything we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but you stop me at a point. I'll look up. I'll give you puppy dog eyes okay. at various points and see if you want to say something. All right. Okay. We Russians, generally speaking, have never had any stupid translun- translunary, excuse me, translunaries. This He uses it like five times, so I yeah. might practice the fucking word. Right. Translunary? I've, I've never said it before. I think translunary? Translunary, uh, which would be... Preoccupation with the moon? Yeah, like a kind of romantic. Yeah. Yeah, romantic. Like laying on your back, looking up at the moon. Right, crossing to the moon. Yeah. Like going to the moon. Yeah, the moon sucks. <laughs> Fuck the moon. Fuck the moon. <laughs> Fuck the moon. Okay, so we Russians, generally speaking, have never had any stupid translunary German, and more especially French romantics, who are not affected by anything. Let the earth crumble, crumble under them. Let the whole of France perish on the barricades. They are what they are. They won't change even for the sake of decency. And they'll go on singing their translunary songs till their dying day, so to speak, because they're fools. But we, in our Russian land, have no fools. That is a known fact. That's what makes us different from all those other German lands. Yeah, so, I mean, 
there's a lot in there. So first is known fact. Yeah. So the first is the refusal to distinguish Germany from France, which is funny right away. So it's almost as if he's saying all that, you know, because Germany and France are always at war. But from the Russian point of view, as Virginia Woolf says, that's the narcissism of small differences. Western Europe is Western Europe. And they're consumed with this translunary romanticism, this um, preoccupation with taking leave of the earth, being radical. He mentions the barricades, which is the, you know, the French throw up the barricades when they have their revolution, the barricades in the streets. So there's a deep critique of the radical left in this book, as in a lot of his works. Um, Early radical left. Yeah, but I mean, it hasn't changed as much as you might think in 200 years. Um, but are you an anarchist or a communist? <laughs> right. <laughs> Do you um, love hierarchy or hate it? But uh, the other thing, though, that I hear that's that's funny is when he says, and here's where you know, Sam, you don't speak Russian, do you? I don't speak Russian. I don't know either. No. <laughs> no. Okay. So here's where you might need a Russian speaker to do a close reading of the text. But assuming Richard Pivier and Linda Volokonsky can be relied upon to be good translators, I hear a certain irony in that claim. We don't have fools in Russia because one of the most prominent archetypes of Russian culture, we talked about it a lot in Madness and Mad Men in Russian culture in college, was the holy fool, the, the sort of fool in Christ this uh, person, usually a man who would sort of wander uh, barefoot in a robe, uh, speaking senselessly because he had uh, taken leave of the everyday world and just sort of lived this, lived in this lunatic holiness. And mm-hmm. you, you see this in other works of Dostoevsky's. And that might be why they like Shakespeare so much in this book. Yes. Yeah. Dostoevsky loves Shakespeare, I think. Because yeah. of the fool. The fool character. Only the mm-hmm. fool tells the truth. Yeah. The exclusive... Um, strains or threads of wisdom that can't be unlocked in a rationally practiced life. Yes. And the value of that, seeing the value of that, not letting it be crushed by utilitarian um, oppressiveness. Right. And so I take his critique of European romanticism to be that it's a kind of sham foolishness. It's a foolishness by the book, by the numbers, that's going to end up two in, plus two equals four. Two plus two equals four. Is Fuck the, that. There's the refrain of this book. And he says that's the, I mean, it's so funny because George Orwell in 1984 says freedom is the freedom to say two plus two equals four. And that's Orwell's critique of the radical left. But this book, that's very English, very empiricist. But this book says freedom is the freedom to say two plus two equals five. That's mm, freedom. Yeah. yeah. Orwell has not had an acclaimed, uh, 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 stay in the in the grand podcast a bit. <laughs> no, that's we, true. I love Orwell, by the way. Yeah. Uh, maybe we should do it. We episode. love him and we hate him. Yeah, in yeah. the spirit of of Dostoevsky. <laughs> right, right. Um, but yeah, it, it's a very different conception of freedom. I once posted on Facebook the number two doesn't exist, mm-hmm. and then a former professor who I was friends with privately messaged me mm-hmm. and said, "Sam, the number two most certainly exists. <laughs> wow. Is that uh, someone we both know? Yes. It's okay. mutual. Okay. It's a mutual person of admiration and, and complete and utter and total disdain. <laughs> right. That's also Dostoevsky. It is. Why does the number- I love her. I hate her. <laughs> right. Why does the number- Because she told me to exist. Why does the number two not exist? 
I think at that time I was really, really, really into the number three. Okay. Oh, so it's almost a Hegelian. Uh, I was, yeah, yeah, okay. almost Hegelian, okay. almost absolute. I got it. I, I was so, <laughs> I was so triglyceride, or I was so, tri- <laughs> uh, I was so triceratops. I was so, <laughs> so triconfigured yeah. that I lost, I lost rational hold on the number two. <laughs> right, right. I could see how that could happen. <laughs> uh, so this book was written for, for the underground. Yeah, I think there's a way in which you have to already have had all these thoughts yeah. to understand them. You have to kind of go through things like that, right? Um, and he goes on, and he says, consequently, we have because there are no fools, and that's a fact. Mm-hmm. Consequently, therefore, we have no. Translunary, what is it? Trans translunary, translunary. Okay. But I don't know. We have we have no translunary natures in a, a pure state. It was our positive publicists and critics of the time hunting after Kostens Hoglos and Uncle Pyotr Ivanovich, and foolishly taking them for our ideal, who heaped it all on our romantics, holding them to be of the same. Uh, translunary sort as in Germany or France. On the contrary, the properties of our romantic are utterly and directly opposite to those of the translunary European. And no little European yardstick will fit here. Do permit me the use of this word romantic, a venerable word, respectable, worthy, and familiar to all. The properties of our romantic are to understand everything, to see everything and to see often incomparably more clearly than our very most positive minds do. Not to be reconciled with anyone or anything, but at the same time not to spurn anything, to get around everything, to yield to everything, to be politic with everyone, to be politic with everyone, never to lose sight of the useful practical goal, some nice little government apartment, a little pension, a little decoration or two, to keep an eye on this goal through all enthusiasms and little volumes of lyrical verses, and at the same time, also to preserve the beautiful and lofty and violet in himself till his dying day, and incidentally to preserve himself quite successfully as well, somehow in cotton wool, like some little piece of jewelry, if only, shall we say, for the benefit of the same beautiful and lofty. Yeah, so there's also a lot in that that we need. That was a chunk. That was, yeah. So let's, uh, let's go through that slowly. So... One of Dostoevsky's preoccupations that um, Richard Pivier, the translator, points out in the introduction, that it's fully elaborated in his long novel, Demons, a.k.a. Devils, a.k.a. The Possessed, is Dostoevsky has this reading of Russian history where the 1840s, which is where, you know, when he was a younger man, like in his 20s, that was a very romantic period. And that was a period of romantic liberalism. And then the 1860s, when he's writing this book on the uh, far side of middle age, that's a period of utilitarian nihilism. A clamping down. A clamping down and a like a, a rationalism. And one of Dostoevsky's theses that comes out clearly in Demons, but I think is is flagged in that passage you just read, is that these two things which seem opposed are actually related. 
Because what happens is the romantics of the 40s, the romantic liberals, who have merely idealist visions mm-hmm. of a better life, utopian socialists, mm-hmm. uh, no, you know, they're not materialists. They're um, reading French romanticism. The goodness of the self expressible through literature. Through, yeah, the beautiful and lofty. He says they ironically, by destroying the social and religious traditions of Russia in the name of freedom and expressing this inner goodness and inner beauty and loftiness wiped out metaphysics in Russia. And because that ideal utopia they saw was never going to come because of Mm -hmm. nonsense that they had fantasized, what comes in the place of both their vanished dream Mm -hmm. and the metaphysical structures they kicked out is nihilist materialism. Of course, this is a, this is a heavy critique of, of socialism. Yeah. This, and to me, there's another uh, analogy or corollary um, to 19th century America, which is some good old fashioned anti-communism. Yeah, there is definitely that in, in Dostoevsky. And he's often seen as uh, particularly prophetic of the, of the course the left would take in the 20th century. Now, this is a bit of a historical digression, but do you know anything about, was he um, exalted by the Soviet Union? Or was he um, suppressed because of these, um, this direct attack of sort of an idealist socialist project? My understanding is that they had much more of a problem with him than they had with some of the other Russian classics like Tolstoy or Pushkin. For um, these reasons, exactly. For these reasons. And and they precisely what we're going to talk about, I, I assume, is his defense of irrationalism in this book. That you have we've to. We've already been talking about. It. We've already been talking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that that it's necessary to break free of the the prison of rationality. That's a very non-Soviet, uh, anti-Soviet, anti-communist view. Yeah, because if you could just scientifically determine an, a, a progressive finish to history, mm-hmm. where all is taken care of, it would have to include totalitarian. Structures of rationalism, exactly. Yeah, and as artists, that's a that's an encroachment on our individuality and our personality and our freedom to freedom and personal belief and our freedom to express ourselves. Yes, yeah. There's a tremendous irony with Dostoevsky that um, George Steiner talks about in his book Tolstoy or Dostoevsky. Um, he doesn't come to a conclusion, by the way. Um, <laughs> I don't think you're supposed to choose, um, but he talks about how. Strangely, Dostoevsky is amenable to liberalism, even though his personal politics were wildly anti-liberal. He was a Russian chauvinist, anti-Semite, anti-Catholic, you know, would actually be quite at home in in Putin's Russia. I think think a lot of Russians are amenable to liberalism. Mm -hmm. (laughs) More more than they're allowed to uh, maybe realize and express internally. (laughs) And he seems not to have realized it himself uh, because his personal politics were ultra right wing by the end of his life. But the the view that well, you that, have can, to, that can be amenable to liberalism too. It can, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the the view of the the necessity of the individual's irrationality can be a liberal concept. But I want to I want to hear what you have to say. There's two parts that stand out to me in this. Um, obviously, he's lying. Well, I don't know if he's lying. He says never lose sight of the pra- useful practical goal. Yeah, which is interesting because there's something behind all the contradictions and the irrationality, mm-hmm. which is that I want 
some I will I will wrest some level of material security and status and satisfaction out of the world. Yeah. And I will be able to subordinate like these other drives at the right time in the right place mm-hmm. in order to guarantee that security. Some artists never learn that and they don't get and their their works don't endure. Okay. That's that's a component. So you think he's so I read that passage as he was making fun of that okay. type of person. No, I think there's a dead seriousness okay. embedded in it. Well, I think, yeah, you could probably read every statement in this book as mockery and seriousness. Mm. Um, so I guess the way I read it was he was saying, um, oh, you claim to be, um, you know, you claim to be bohemian. You put on these bohemian airs, but really you just care about money. Right. But you think there's a there's a serious part of that, which is there is a genuine the the true Russian romantic has a genuine attachment to the the material. Well, I think I think the true American romantic as well, mm. in the sense that even though what I am seeming to do it like like Ishmael goes out and with, with his hypos and he in the street and he knocks top hats off, even if that see that irrationality seems harmful and regressive and without benefit, there are things. The right degree and type of that type of transgression actually leads to horizons of value and opportunities of value that are not available through just a straight, a straight um, pursuit Mm -hmm. um, or a rational, straight uh, rational pursuit. Right. And that you don't understand these transgressions. Like maybe I'll do something that's not in my interest. Maybe I'll spend money on materials to make a painting. Maybe I'll spend two, three weeks in a basement with fumes on my knees, half naked, clawing at this work of art instead of buying groceries. But I'm doing this in the basement and I have damage. I have physical damage. I have financial damage. But you will never be able to see what that opens for me. You will never be able to see um, the value of, of that irrationality and what that allows me to perceive and what that allows me to ultimately create i think and maybe that'll turn into sort of a material a material reward yeah yeah and i i like that final twist because there's the sense that um there's the sense that that should should just be its own reward but i i often think that one of the things that people get wrong who are always trying to maximize utility and rationality is that they don't see how um, success, however defined, often comes through circuitous routes, through byways, how much staring out the window you have to do to write a book, how you can't be maximally Mm -hmm. efficient and active at every moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he says the underground man in the first part of the book, he's having a waging a polemic against the uh, utilitarians who calculate everything based on the idea of like homo economicus man will do whatever it's most profitable to the do. The Bloombergs of the world. The Bloombergs of the world. Um, and he says, uh, actually the, the finest profit, the highest profit is proving that you're not simply enslaved to this rational calculus. Right. That's the greatest but profit I of all. I think what he's, that's the greatest profit of all. That's the greatest profit of all. Of course, this very stupid thing, this caprice of ours, may be in reality, gentlemen, more advantageous for us than anything else on earth.
man is stupid, you know, phenomenally stupid. Or rather, he is not at all stupid. But I repeat for the hundredth time, for the hundredth time, there is one case, one only, to have the right to desire for himself even what is very stupid, and not to be bound by an obligation to desire only what is sensible. Of course, this very stupid thing, this caprice of ours, may be in reality, gentlemen, more advantageous for us than anything else on earth, especially in certain cases. And in particular, it may be more advantageous than any advantage, even when it does us obvious harm. It preserves for us what is most precious and most important, that is, our personality, our individuality. This is what separates um, the great the great artists from what Delillo called the in underworld referred to those who practice the jerk off gesture. Mm -hmm. So the the expression of freedom in absence of any politic or absence yeah. of any scheme mm -hmm. of a, a sort of. Um, Unorthodox rationality. Yeah, he's not defending um, something like French avant-gardism. The, the jerk-off gesture. The jerk-off gesture. Yeah, of the putting, onanism. The onanism, putting the urinal in the museum yeah. or, or whatever. Yeah. But what is he, and, and this is the part, the properties of our romantic are to understand everything. Yeah. To see everything. And to see often incomparably more clear, clearly than our very most positive minds do. To right. See, to see everything. Everything, yeah. And that's what separates him from, so Vladimir Nabokov uh, hated Dostoevsky. And one of the charges he lays against him in his lectures on Russian literature is that, well, all he ever read was trash. He just read uh, and Radcliffe's gothic thrillers, and he read sentimental novels by Samuel Richardson and Victor Hugo. And um, actually, do you know, he, there's, he didn't read Hawthorne or Melville. There is one American writer he did read and love. Can you, do you po. know? Poe. Yeah, he loved Poe. Um, and there's a lot of Poe in this book, I think, a lot of like the, the wild-eyed, irrational narrator. Um, but I think that's the, the defense of him against Nabokov's charge is that there's in a lot of those writers, um, the, the ones that I've read anyway, like Anne Radcliffe, there's not that sense of everything. There's not that sense of you don't know what's going to happen from one page to the next, because the forms the irrationality takes, especially in the second half of this novella, are not romantic traditionally. They're often quite pathetic. He acts like a toddler. Mm. Uh, he acts like a child. He mm. acts like a mm. like a like a monster at points. Um, you get into this insect world, this vermin world of Kafka that's not romantic in the idealist sense. So it does take account of the whole range of human experience. Well, we can't forget that he is sick. Yeah, and he this says is he's a, sick. This is a book about sickness. Yeah. And not just the pathologies of the course of a disease, but how sickness is contemplated and, and uh, how it ult ultimately alters our perception 
and becomes uh, psychosomatic. Yeah. And potentially very artistic if you play your cards right, you right. sickos. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like what's in Absalom Absalom where um, what's uh, who, who's the main protagonist? Why do I forget his name? Which one? In Absalom Absalom. The, the big guy? Yeah. Sutpin. Sutpin. Yeah. I, I mean, this is this is so good. This is such good motific stuff. But in the first couple of pages of Sutpin, Faulkner, he writes, he writes, um, uh, you you know, basically, you, you wouldn't believe how sick this man was, yeah, and what he recovered from. Mm-hmm. The, that well, the course of the illness that he recovered from, you wouldn't believe the sickness. Mm-hmm. And then he emerged from that that fervent, feverish, uh, metabolic conflagration. He emerged from it altered. It's yeah. like sickness alters. Mm-hmm. Um, madness alters. Faulkner, interestingly, he was often said to have read Dostoevsky, and he hadn't. And then he was like, "Well, I better read him." And so he read him in the middle of his career. But people had assumed when he was writing *The Sound and the Fury* and *Absalom, Absalom* and those books that he had read him, but he hadn't. Well, this is this goes with the theme of this episode now, which is the kind of unknowing. Um, connection between American and Russian literary developments. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was the French, ironically, who made the connection between him and, and Dostoevsky. Because mm. I think the French love Dostoevsky right away because they, they love extremity. Um, and so Camus and Gide and, and Sartre and these people all, you know, marinated in Dostoevsky. Now, we can move on from this page or go wherever, but I, I want one more just one more query about what is it when he says to see everything, mm-hmm. does that mean to understand everything in its natural laws and, and, and symmetry, scientific symmetry, or does that mean a mind upon which no experience is lost and all experiences are invested with a proliferating meaning yeah, I think if we go with the idea that there's a double sense to the whole passage where one part of it refers to the crass utilitarian romantics, mm-hmm. then they want rational understanding of everything. Mm-hmm. But another part of it could be read as this consci- what I what he calls uh, consciousness somewhere in the book that um, and, and consciousness is this almost Henry Jamesian spider web of of experience that encompasses um all the knowledge you have based on what you've you've experienced. This is this is heightened consciousness. Yeah, and he almost says, "Give me, give me some um, patience, because or give people in this situation some patience mm-hmm. in this condition of heightened consciousness." Yeah, yeah, it's almost like this fugue state where we can be idiots. Yeah, we can be cowards. Mm-hmm. We can be improper. Um, and we can have social foibles like with his friends. I mean, it's excruciating. Oh yeah, a, a yeah. total inability to to fit in. Right. But give give us who are in that category some at least leeway to explore, or at least a little respect for um, what we may be trying to do with that heightened consciousness. Yeah. The the structure is interesting. It's in two parts. And the first part is him at 40 years old, giving his 
mature worldview, the conclusions he's come to. And the second part is his flashback to being in his 20s and what seemed to be some of his last social experiences and how they, I guess, brought him to this present state of consciousness. Mm. Now, what about the idea that this is somewhat of a, because when I read it, it seemed to me some some type of manual mm-hmm. for a novelist. Um, in what way? And in lines like this. So he says, and this is him answering his critics. Um, he's talking to himself. Yeah, his imagined he's, critics. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I do this all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so this is what the critics are saying to him at, on page 38. You talk nonsense and you are pleased with it. You say impudent things, yet you keep being afraid and asking for forgiveness for them. You insist that you are not afraid of anything, and at the same time, you court our opinion. Yeah. (laughs) And so you think that's how writers should act? I think that's how, and I don't want to be, what's the word when you absolute or you apply something to everybody? Yeah. Or I don't want to apply this, Mm -hmm. universalize it. Right. But I mean, it is probably what I do, but I think, no, this is, I, what I think when I say manual, yeah, it's kind of ironic. You could say it's like a, like a scripture. That's also ironic, right. but, but like this high and low, but he's talking to a group of people. Mm. He's not talking to everyone. Yeah. Um, and, and you ask like, is that how, like, is that how we should be or artists should be? I wonder if, like, this is how we are. Yeah. Well, and I want to be careful with essentializing that because there's a lot of different types of artists. Right. And the idea that capricious artists, temperamental, sure, you know, but yeah, it's just how we are. Well, the desperate desire to convince this is where the idea of raisonnement comes in. Uh, this desperate desire to convince people that you seem to hold in contempt. So if he holds these people in contempt, these bien-pensant Russian liberals, why is he talking to them for 140 pages? Why does he so desperately want to convince them? And for that matter, why do I blog every day to the same group of people, frankly? Uh, Shouldn't I just dismiss these people? Shouldn't I go on my way? What, What is it that makes me want to have them see that I'm right and say, oh, yeah, yeah, we do agree with you? Uh, we've been wrong about all this. <laughs> you, you want you want their approval on one hand, yeah. But on the other hand, you I, I mean it's more you it's it's more useless to you than a than a piece of trash on this. You couldn't yeah. you couldn't care at all what these people think about what right. you write because you know why you write and you know and you know the power of your of your art. So who, yeah, how could that possibly affect me? But please say something. Yeah, please give me some. Right. Some, some I have nothing but contempt for your judgment. So why don't you praise me? <laughs> <laughs> I think this is a good, a, a nice component of the consciousness in this novel. Yeah. That right there. Um, and hate as an instrument towards the end, the benefits of hate, the value mm-hmm. of hate. Yeah. Um, this is not, a, he's not a moral philosopher. No. Though Pivir no, might be. Well, in his introduction quotes a letter from Dostoevsky to his brother, where Dostoevsky said, 
Well, there's supposed to be a passage in this book where I say, of course, the you know the solution is you you must believe in Christ, but the censors cut that out, and mm. he never restored it. And and I said in my my post on this that that's why this book became the the first great existentialist novel because it leaves off the solution to the existential problem, which is you should repose your faith in Christ. Uh, and you're just left in the the classic existential solution of having to create your own values ex nihilo. So this is a more existentialist novel than any of his other works? Yeah, I mean, his, his later novels all much more explicitly have the Christian conclusion. Though he wrestles in his each of his novels with the fact that the Christian conclusion that faith can never be an argument, faith can never be rational. Right. Yeah. So there's um, so in the Brothers Karamazov, everybody probably knows the central passage of that. Uh, the the most famous passage of that novel is the Legend of the Grand Inquisitor. Have you ever read that, Sam? No. So I'll just briefly give a rundown. So the the Brothers Karamazov is about you know, these titular brothers whose father is murdered Mm -hmm. and each of them sort of falls under suspicion of having murdered the father. And each of the brothers represents like a different orientation toward life. So one is a saintly novice who's going to become a monk. One is a tormented atheist and one is a sensualist, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, just a a bon vivant. Um, Is it like in the the Highwaymen song, um, Born and Raised in Black and White, one loved about two brothers, um, one loved to pray, one loved to fight. One yeah. learned to pray, one loved to fight. Right. So, yeah. yeah. And then we have one who loves to think. So yeah. that's the yeah. three. Um, and Pray, fight, think. Pray, fight, think. Eat, pray, love. Um, <laughs> Eat, pray, cunnilingus. <laughs> Live, laugh, love. Um, <laughs> Vagina dentata. Um, but... Uh, the, so the, the the central passage in the Brothers Karamazov is a conversation between the Alyosha, the holy brother, and Ivan, the tormented atheist. And Ivan says, Ivan makes the great atheist declaration that he can't believe in God because um, if God essentially is as omnipotent and omniscient and has created this best of all possible worlds, why does a child suffer? You know, none of this is worth mm-hmm. the tears of a child. Mm-hmm. And then he gives a parable. He writes what he calls a poem, though it's in prose in the novel, called The Legend of the Grand Inquisitor. And he imagines um, Spain at the time of the Inquisition. Mm-hmm. And he says, Jesus comes back to Spain mm-hmm. at the time of the Inquisition. He's healing people and he's raising the dead and he's doing all the stuff he does in the Gospels. And the head of the Inquisition, this old man, commands the Inquisition, take him in, you know, take him in. He's a heretic. He knows it's Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so he interrogates him and there's this great dialogue. Well, it's not a dialogue because Jesus never replies, but he says to Jesus, look, I know it's you and I know you came to give mankind the freedom to choose salvation. But the problem is mankind doesn't want salvation. Uh, Mankind wants bread. And we, mm. the Catholic Church, have supplied the needs of mankind. Wow. And so you coming back is fucking this all up for us. Oh. And so we have to we have to burn you at the stake. What a sublime and horrifying arrangement. It is. And then the reply, Jesus never says anything. And he re- his reply to the Inquisitor is he kisses him. And then at the after Ivan tells Alyosha the parable, 
Alyosha kisses Ivan. Mm-hmm. And so Dostoevsky's idea here is that faith is an act and it's an act of love. There's not going to be an answer. You're never going to reason your way mm-hmm. to belief in God or to why God lets bad things happen to good people. There's no answers, but the the ultimate act of faith is the act of love. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, thanks for that description. Um, but that that brings to my is this is this a non theological novella or is this a is this divorced from salvation and the, that's that's a question surrounding it. I think it is. Yeah, I would say it's not. Okay, I would say those are. I would say that. There's a fixation or yeah, not fix there's a, a meditation here on a fundamental component of theology, religiosity, Christian experience, um, subjective experience of Christianity, which is the, the nature of evil. Mm-hmm. Say more. Where where do you see that? <laughs> well, I see I see a a demonry, uh, a drive. A compulsion. Uh, um, I see. So the narrator is evil. I think what what, but I think what is going on here is there's an acceptance of that, and it's almost like a textbook. It's almost like instead of prayer and and, and good act and, and and good acts and piety as a as a means to ward off evil. It's like a textbook of <laughs> how to deal with evil if you don't quite have those measures or like wow. how and actually how to subjectively if you're embedded with it if you're sick yeah how to actually transform that and not try to maybe find well not necessarily have that triangulating omnipotent salvation mm-hmm. but be caught in the opposites latent in creation and knowing that maybe that's there maybe that's not but let's focus on the word creation mm-hmm. so in your view the act of writing the text and therefore inhabiting this contradiction is the act of salvation that we're given in in the text as far as art can provide salvation yes which is yeah. to a degree but right. probably not absolute. Probably not absolute. But to a degree. Yeah, yeah. And anyone who says otherwise is prove them wrong. Right. Survive with this stuff. I mean, well, yeah. the refrain of his other novel, "The Idiot," is the titular idiot who is a Christ-like figure, is rumored to have said. Though I don't think he ever says it in the text, but everybody attributes to him the remark, "Beauty will save the world." Obviously, we know that's not. True. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, there is, a, I think there is one Christian act in this novel. Do what you, is it? It's, um, it's the, it's Lisa? Lisa, yeah. Where she, so he, um, shall I maybe just describe the second part for our audience? Sure. Yeah. Um, so the first part is kind of a philosophical treatise. And then the second part is narrative. So he describes these three episodes in his early 20s. And two of them are very comic. Uh, The first one is he becomes obsessed with this army guy, this army officer he sees in a bar. And it's pretty funny. The guy's coming toward him 
and he won't get out of his way. So the army guy picks him up and moves him, which is kind of a funny yeah. image. Yeah. <laughs> um, and this makes him seethe with hatred for this guy. Well, this is this is the limits of an artist's masculinity. Yes. Yeah, it's <laughs> definitely a masculine contest. So he starts stalking this guy. Like he goes to his apartment and asks his landlord about him and things like that. Um, and then he keeps trying to run into him on the on the Nevsky Prospect, the main street in Petersburg. And he steals himself. He says, I'm going to, I'm going to run right into this guy. We're going to, I'm not going to get out of the way. Yes, He's yes, not going to get yes. out of the way and I'm going to run right into him. And he does. And, and of course. And launched into exuberance. Yes. Yeah. yeah. This is very real. Yeah. This is, <laughs> this is, this is the details that um, seem out of the ordinary, but, but then they're rendered by an artist and they're, they're more real than than what is ordinary or this is the yeah this is this compulsive realism right this um, distillation of a common experience yeah, psychological needs driving us yeah and how we reward ourselves with acts that seem bizarre and senseless right but acts that like feed yeah um, some <laughs> incoherent personal narrative yeah no I, I mean it happened to me just down the street from where we we're recording yeah. uh, a few years ago we're in Minnesota and uh, I'm not native to Minnesota and the people here are famously passive aggressive. So yeah. I was crossing the street in a raging snowstorm, like yeah. five inches of snow. And this guy is coming down the street and I walked in front of him cause he had a stop sign uh -huh. and he rolled down the window and he said, he said, uh -huh. uh, I like how you cross the street uh, when a car's coming. Real passive aggressive, no direct accusation, mm -hmm. as if muttered to himself. He likes it, yeah. Yeah, he likes it. Mm. And I just, I exploded. I said, go fuck yourself. You have a stop sign. Yeah. <laughs> like I just, like yeah. this passive aggression uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> drove me insane. You and wanted I, to smash it. I did. Yeah. Um, and that's what I'm not, I'm, by the way, listener, I'm not normally like that on the street. Um, I am <laughs> semi-regularly okay. like that in my life. <laughs> I try to rein it in. But that was one moment where I had this Dostoevsky and uh, mm -hmm. compulsion to have this match of uh, mm -hmm. strength for strength but the point of that interaction is that it's like elliot talks about this is so stupid like <laughs> i'm such a fucking idiot <laughs> like elliot talks about like elliot talks about you the point of completing a work of art is to move get to the zone where you can make the next work of art you're right so yeah. our arts works of art are like are skips on a pond like rock skips on a you can't have one unless they're progressive. Yes. Basically. Um, so I finished my crayon drawing and now I can do my pastels, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but this is, this is like, to me, this is like that in the sense, like he needed to have this contact or this engagement or he needed to, a need had to be met for him to move to like the next, or it was important in that sense. It wasn't important in any sort of immediate relational social sense it was important in the sense that he needed it to get to the zone where he could have the next set of fixations and yes that's why it's important yeah yeah it's um, like he has to complete some kind of yeah. challenge with each it's what's yeah. it's what it leads to yeah which and also formally that's in the novel that's that's how it functions too so you write that to get to the next yeah and what if whatever subsequent couldn't possibly 
occur without what was previous or there's yeah. like a very basic formal logic to that but it's also um psychological yeah so well that brings us to the next episode in the the second part which is that he has this old school friend the next episode is dr dre no i didn't oh god <laughs> edit this part out it's embarrassing okay <laughs> So the next episode um, <laughs> is where he um, he has this school friend and he goes to visit him. And there's all these other people he knew from school that he has this fraught relationship with. And this is this is a pretty long one. I'll, I'll try to keep it short. But it, it, it turns out they're going to go. Um, some guy they all admire is going off to, to uh, join the army. So they're going to have a farewell party for him the next day. And he says, oh, I'll come. And clearly they don't want him to come and they no. think he's a pain in the ass. So he gets there the next day and they've changed the time, obviously, to try to like ditch him. And he stays and waits for them. And then he insults them and they insult him. And then he ends up, they go to the back room of this bar and they're all drinking and he's insulted them, but he wants to keep his sense of... um that they haven't, you know, bested him. So instead of leaving, which is what a normal person would do, mm-hmm. he ignores them and paces for three hours while they're talking. And he just walks from one room to the, and he describes himself getting dizzier and dizzier right. and sweating right. as he uh, subjects himself to this sort of endurance test. Um, so again, it's another contest of masculinity another sense that he doesn't uh, measure up. He's always, the interesting thing about him is he has no inner sense of self-worth. I don't know. I don't know about that. No. I don't know. Well, at this phase in the narrative, maybe by the time he's writing it, he does, but. Yeah. He always needs to see his reflection in I'm, someone else. I'm I'm liable to give this narrator narrator a lot of intention. These mistakes in him being a scoundrel and him being erratic and and abusive and contradictory are the very materials for um, the work of art and all else can burn in hell I'm willing to give him that yeah yeah and, and that's why I say it's like a manual right right well I, I mentioned that uh, this was the one work of Dostoevsky's we know Nietzsche read and uh, and so there's clearly Nietzsche's idea of raison d'amant, that sense of perverse enjoyment of one's own perceived powerlessness and desire to get revenge on the world mm-hmm. in consequence by making the world sort of question its own strength. But also Nietzsche's idea that uh, life is only justified as an aesthetic phenomenon. So he ends up, his friends leave and he tries to like chase after them and he he goes to a brothel where they've gone and they've already left by the time he gets there. Because of course he, he hires a coachman and he's like, drive there. And then he's like, no, wait. And then he's like, drive there (laughs) because he's very erratic. And so he gets there like an hour later and he ends up, he's drunk by this point and he ends up sleeping with a young prostitute named Liza, Liza, however you want to say it. 
Now this, if I recall my madness and madmen in Russian culture class correctly, I'm putting a lot of weight on this class. Mm. Um, that was kind of a trope in Russian romantic literature was the poor, poor Litsa, the redeemed prostitute, the hooker with a heart of gold. So Dostoevsky is kind of subverting an existing okay. like trope of romantic literature here. So the underground man <clears throat> apparently sleeps with her. Then they wake up and then he does probably his most kind of unforgivable, cruel act in mm-hmm. the text, which is he gives her these two speeches, one of which extols like normative family life and the other one of which paints for her a bleak picture of her future and says, oh, you know, eventually you'll just be, you're going to age out of any man wanting you and you'll be thrown mm-hmm. out of this place and you'll be poor and begging on the street. Mm-hmm. And then- he has a moment of pity for her and he gives her his address. <laughs> and clearly the idea is that this is also kind of cruel because he's leading her to believe that he can save her, that he, you know, she'll come and live with him and he'll uh, take care of her. But yeah, you got to watch out for that savior complex in, right. in sexual relationships. Yes. And then she shows up. And he lives in this dingy, shitty apartment with this servant he's comically at war with. Right. um, Which is also very funny. Um, She (laughs) shows up and and he says, like, when she walks in, I saw on her face that she was expecting that I lived in, like, a real house and (laughs) not in a squalid apartment with this uh, servant. And so then he breaks down in hysterics, weeping and crying in front of her. And I think the Christian act in the novel is the moment where she tends to him mm-hmm. when he's weeping. and The catharsis. The, and he's having his catharsis. And she selflessly, I think by this point, she realizes he's probably crazy. He's not rich. He can't help me. And yet she gives of herself right. to him. Genuine. Yeah, it's a genuine act of love. And then how does he repay her? He seduces her. He sleeps with her again. And then in the final insult, he tries to pay her as she's going out the door mm-hmm. as if to put her in her place as a whore. That mm-hmm. This has meant nothing to him. And she leaves and he thinks, and this is how it ends. He thinks about running after her and then he doesn't. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's where he realizes he has to go underground. Mm. Um, and insofar as the novel ends without Christian salvation, then, as you say, Sam, the redemptive act is the ability to write it. Absolutely. It's nice that it ends with sexuality. And I always like works of art which have an aspect of procreation or the possibility of procreation or, yeah, or a work. <laughs> so she's leaving with a potentially yeah, or underground baby. Like my favorite, my all-time favorite, my all-time favorite example is Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, 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 a total favorite of mine. I mean, I quite frankly think it cracks, the co- cracks a code of Western art mm-hmm. or puts together a code that hadn't been assembled. I was trying to write my thesis on it as an undergrad mm-hmm. and my proposals were so were so outlandish uh, outlandish but they were so um unorthodox is that where you i, I think i remember is that where you had the four-part structure of oh, the yeah. artists and, yeah. yeah 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 i think i remember that we'll have to talk but, about that yeah sure <laughs> we can revive it yeah uh, <clears throat> and but it also it, i was thinking about allegory a lot of the time and like 
how things watch other things proceed in mm. sort of providential ways and how narrative art is the perfect mode of sort of a predetermined like providential perspective mm-hmm. and that that film it that's just i i it's ridiculous i'm ridiculous <laughs> yeah I'm we, we should do an episode scoundrel just, we should do an episode on it i only I've you know sam's undergraduate notebooks <laughs> yeah yeah it started a bonfire no there's <laughs> some good stuff in there but <laughs> um but anyway so with with the master that's my favorite example. So at the beginning of the movie, Freddie Quill, who was is an aberrated, you know, off the path, like soldier in World War II, he drinks rocket fuel and makes beverages out of different chemicals. And um, he's very much in the realm of Dostoevsky or he would fit in this type of universe. And at the beginning of the film, we see him masturbating into the ocean with his Navy buddies on the beach. And (laughs) which is to say, I mean, that's about as impotent as you could get sending your seed into Mm -hmm. something as vast and unforgiving as an ocean. Yeah. Like there's no home for it to take root and grow or to fertilize. It's the absence of that. It's complete annihilation of seed Mm -hmm. and immediate annihilation. (laughs) And, but by the, the end of the last scene of the film, he goes through, he meets the master, he meets Lancaster. And, you know, what unfolds is, you know, treasure of all all time and a gift to to aesthetics forever. But and, and then in the end, the final scene is after he's gone through processing, the final scene is him inside of a woman in a sexual act. Mm hmm laughing and doing the very thing he learned through the film to her in that moment, in Mm -hmm. that erotic, playful moment. Yeah. Which is to say, and then I was into this idea that Freddie became an allegory for the film itself. And that, um, um, at first he had no, he had no way to procreate or to disseminate or to spread the work, but through its process, um, and through meeting the master, which is the artist, Dodd, he was given a, a a a vessel of procreation or a womb yeah. with which to set, and that's the exact moment when the film finishes that there has been like a sort of insemination or a continuation or a life right. that it begins its life. Yeah, in us, in a sense, I guess we're getting inseminated by it, but the <laughs> um, I like that. I like that motifically in narrative art. Mm-hmm. I like procreation and um, I like the possibility of it here. Yeah. I mean, it also sets up a cartoon sequel that's like notes from the womb, his little fetus uh, <laughs> scribbling his own manic. <laughs> but um, yeah, R- Rene Girard, the Catholic uh, literary theorist who loved Dostoevsky, he says in his book, Deceit, Desire in the Novel, is that what it's called? Deceit, Desire in the Novel? Um, his, I think one of his first books where he lays out his his literary theory that also culminates in the necessity of faith in God. But he says in that book that in the great novels, um, and he's thinking of Dostoevsky and Proust and, uh, and Stendhal and Cervantes, in the great novels, there's a convergence at the end of the hero and the writer because the hero ends up at the end of the narrative knowing enough to write the book. And I think that's very literally happens here. It's a lovely thing. Yeah. Um, 
it's a lovely thing which can be the and its permutations can be the topic of like endless discussions around many different works of art narrative art is a gorgeous lovely thing it is it's a it's a it's an um it's an infinite well i mean it has no bottom really right yeah with which I, to draw yeah i mean paradoxically i think that's why it sometimes doesn't get as much respect as lyric art or or things that narrative can never be perfect because it covers too much space and time and so um drama or lyric can be perfect can be crystal mm. and narrative can't and so i think sometimes it's dismissed for that reason because there's always um lost blank spots or there's always lost yeah elements it can't all be integrated right it can never you, you know you can't like nabokov he said dostoevsky well he writes very carelessly and it's like I get, I mean, there's an, I, I don't know. I don't speak Russian, but I assume, okay, there's no, probably no great sentence in this book in the way there is in, in a Nabokov novel or, um, but the whole thing is, is the art, the whole, the whole emergent, as Virginia Woolf says, whirlpool or whirlwind of the thing is the, is the majestic work of art, not some particular sentence. Not at all. Stupid. <laughs> So, John, obviously we're in, I, th- I think, week three or four of the conflict in Eastern Europe between Russia and Ukraine. Um, you've been writing about it. You've been writing about it in a way that's um, unconventional. You've been focusing on different aspects of, of this conflict that, that, aren't, that aren't being talked about or maybe aren't being analyzed or reported on. I don't know. I haven't, I haven't been reading it. But you know, fill me in on on what what your thinking has has been, and and why you've sort of chosen these these lines of inquiry into this ongoing conflict. Yeah, thanks, Sam. So, um, at the at the risk of a of a what aboutism, I've been thinking about the ways that Western political and cultural actors have been responding to the conflict. And the kinds of destabilizations of the previously more solid lines of left versus right or woke versus anti-woke in the West that have um, that have been been disrupted by this conflict. So, I've been interested in, for example, um, the way that uh, well, I've been worried about uh, particularly the way that our response to the illiberalism of Russia and of Putin is too often taking a form of mirroring some of that illiberalism yeah. of, um, of, uh, you know, Putin cracks down on social media and other kinds of media and we crack down on social media and other kinds of media. Um, and it just seems to me that the, the foundation of the distinction that's supposed to be made between the liberal West and, and illiberal Russia is being eroded by this eruption of illiberalism. So you're saying the the very things we're using to condemn uh, Russia and Putin are uh, are some of those things we're we're hypocritically violating in small degrees here. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. In the sort of fog and fever of war, we have this accusation that anyone who questions a government narrative must be in the pay of Putin, mm-hmm. um, and that I mean that must endorse 
the crimes that he's committing. Yes. Yeah. And that's become a real, I think, disease in American political life. Every single faction now accuses the other of being in some foreign agent's pocket. Um, that used to be a Cold War thing that you were a you were a Rusky, you were a Red if you questioned capitalism or something. And then, of course, there's the anti-Semitic variant on that about the Israel lobby or whatever. But now it's it's just completely general. So I think we all know about Russiagate and the way that Trump was accused of being mm-hmm. in the pocket of Putin. Um, but if you look into the the right wing world. Um, they say the same things about Biden and China, like one of the most prominent uh, YouTubers who's a Trump supporter calls him Beijing Biden. Um, and I think you I think I do think at the high level of politics, there's probably a certain truth in some of these accusations that there's a lot of business ties mm-hmm. between, you know, prominent Republicans in, in Russia and prominent Democrats in China. I think there's grains of truth to all that. But I think we want to. Be careful about going down this road that, oh, you could only say something if you're disloyal. Um, right. I think that's a very, I think that's a very um, kind of nihilistic almost accusation. I think so too. And it's not critical. Yeah. And it's even worse because it it's, seems like it's critical. Yeah. But it's not. Right. That's, that's the shit. That's ideology gone wrong. Mm-hmm. When you're experiencing critical thinking and- and uh, or you're experiencing a type of freedom, but really those experiences are it's opposite. Yeah. Um, or I heard somebody say because um, YouTube and other social media companies have banned Russian state media, which you know maybe that's maybe that could be justified, but they're banning disinformation and propaganda. And some controversial journalists, like Glenn Greenwald, for example, have objected to this. And I saw somebody reply to Greenwald, well. You can only object to this if you're in favor of propaganda. And my reply to that is, well, any government political speech is propaganda for one view or another. Uh, you have to be able to, I think, absorb it all to try to find what oh, the, yeah. the it's truth not, is. It's not about whether or not it's propaganda. It's it's about who's better at it. Right, exactly. That's the truth yeah. of it, yeah. folks. Um I mean, I think the best thing you can do is I, I still believe the best thing you can do is often let people speak because their own words will indict them. I mean, I saw Alexander Dugan uh, to return to him. He commented on the war and he said, well, the reason we had to do this was to show that we're still a player at the chessboard of world politics. And I thought, well, that's just that's. What nonsense, what nihilism, what uh, yeah. what sociopathy. I it mean, is, I'm, I'm glad I heard that because that's insane. Like that's, it is. That's completely bankrupt. Um, yeah. So I, I think they should broadcast that everywhere, you know, in America. I, yeah, so, I totally agree. Um, Let me just make a little correction. I think, I don't think all journalism is propaganda. Not all journalism. No. I think, yeah. I think actually the spectrum that I work with is journalism on one end, aesthetics on the other end propaganda in the middle yeah yeah beautiful i think that's the way so, to say it um yeah that's what you <laughs> <laughs> that's what you that's what you tell like oh man i knew this girl in high school and she was straight A. she went to ivy league and working on wall street and i saw her over the summer back in a hometown and 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 um, I, I was like what are you doing now she's like oh i'm working at this big ass rich bank and she was like what are you doing 
I wasn't doing shit. Mm. <laughs> I wasn't really doing shit. Planning a podcast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I was like, you know, well, um, you know, I was thinking about being a journalist, but I don't think I'm I'm rational enough to do that. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm thinking about being a, a poet, but I don't think I'm really romantic enough to do that. Yeah. So I tried to find something right smack dab in the middle. Right. Decided upon being a propagandist. <laughs> yeah. She looked at me and she walked away. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And I said, but I'm a nationalist. <laughs> Do you understand what that means? <laughs> Fuck China. Yeah. <laughs> Do you agree? <laughs> oh, it's very hot. Uh, <laughs> but, um, so, but that's a tough position now because, at least in the Iraq war, um well it was easier to critique like critiques of american of imperialism from the right from a free speech point of view you could even come back at american imperialism um and those have been acceptable and even with the um accusing like clinton and the dnc of mccarthyism and what you mentioned yeah greenwald and those guys had from 2016 to 20 basically february of 2022 very strong, persuasive arguments. It seemed like th- that stuff was arbitrary, but now it's a lot of things have changed with that. It's much harder to make those critiques. I don't envy Greenwald. Yeah, I don't envy people who have put their chips in that mm-hmm. on that hand. Yeah, it might get. They're going to find ways to operate out of it, but right now the sympathies, the politics, the everything is totally consolidated around liberal yeah. internationalist institutions. And- right. I mean, the thing that's going to correct that for them is the extent to which it's not, I I think, maybe I'm wrong, but I think it's not the case that the top echelon of the Republican Party is corrupted by Russia. Um, and so I think there's going to be an organic development of anti-Russian sentiment from the right. They have to. They're mainstream. already working on it. Yeah. And I, I think, and I, I, like I said, maybe I'm wrong, but I genuinely don't think that was ever really true of Trump meaningfully. Um, and and so I think that'll, that'll correct I think Trump it was him. kind of a dum-dum about this stuff. Yeah. And I don't, and I say that I don't even go in for the Trump is stupid critiques. I think Trump is savvy and intelligent in a lot of ways. Yeah. But I think in this in this instance of geopolitics, international relations, I think he was a dum-dum. He had no ideological project. He had no, this idea that he somehow has a commitment to Putinism, I think was wrong. I think he thought, well, I'm going to go talk to this guy. I'm going to see what he wants. I'm going to present our position forthrightly and we'll see what happens. And so that amorality, that unwillingness to say the liberal internationalist yeah. thing even going in registered as support for Putin. But I don't think it actually was. You know what's funny, though, to think about is, so under Trump and the relationship with Russia, <laughs> he 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 doesn't know history very well. No. So he, didn't, he didn't go to life. Johns Hopkins and study, yeah. have, do Russian studies in IR and right. come out the other end, you know, a shiny fucking operator. Um he doesn't know any. He thinks about the eighties. He thinks about you know, banging Playboy bunnies. Yeah, like, that's what, <laughs> right. And Putin, Putin, you know, he doesn't see the bloody, bloody, brutal threat. Maybe he was briefed on it. Maybe he wasn't. But he, that's not in his how he perceives 
And so you wonder if that sort of innocent, nonviolent, dumb recollection of the Russian relations in some sort of weird metaphysical way, like prevented in that period, prevented full scale Russian brutality, like as if the American head of state didn't remember Russia in this way, which is a rightful way to remember them. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) But, But then you get like, you get the, you get those tuned up, you know, people who study the Condi Rices of the world, the Madeleine Albrights of the world, the Hillary Clintons of the world, yeah. who remember, who know, who've spent their whole life studying this brutality and aggression. And it's, and it's almost like with that switch of power, like that in sort of a, a colluding way, like enabled Russia to sort of realize it's, this is a ridiculous argument, but it's no, nice I, I that it's sort of... <laughs> I think it's true. I, I think to the extent that Putin wanted Trump, he thought, oh, well, this will be destabilizing. Yeah. But then he thought, oh, well, they're completely unstable. I don't know what the fuck's going to happen if I move. Or this administration Uh, doesn't implicate my nation in some sort of brutal enemy way. Well, right. Yeah. It's not this. These aren't the people I I remember fighting. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. These are the people who Russians watch on their VHSs. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But then it snapped back. It was a reprieve. And then it snapped back into what is really history. Mm -hmm. Obviously, history would come back. But this is correct. This seems correct to me. Yeah. I mean, it's unacceptable what's happening, but it seems correct. Okay. That <laughs> That's interesting. That, you know? <laughs> yeah. That I guess I prefer the, uh, well, this is probably a real taboo, but I, I prefer the, the, you know, the thing I always thought about Trump was he was so, uh, so proliferating an example of the irrational human being mm-hmm. in politics that we never really see. Um, and I thought there was something fascinating about that in the Dostoevskian sense. Like it put a pause on interminable conflicts. <laughs> yeah, because there was no ideology to Trump. It was just this, 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 this pleasure, this obscene mm-hmm. pleasure, <laughs> this corpulent flesh <laughs> writhing. <laughs> <laughs> and that put a pause on. Yeah. On world history. Right, this carnivalesque. Uh, but we know these things can't last. No, no. These... But I think, I know it's taboo to say this, but, and so people don't say it in public, but I think people think it's, so I'll just say it. I think that there is a nostalgia for that now. For the Trump years? Yeah, for the for the sheer carnival of it. Of course. Yeah. But you don't, you people, you don't get that. Yeah. You don't. <laughs> right. What does it say? Any, um... Um, history only tastes bitter to those who who thought it was sugar-coated. Yeah. Like, you don't get... Right. You can suck the candy for a little bit of time, but... Yeah. Now get get sick and go to war. Right. Because what changes? Mm-hmm. Even if he comes back, he'll he'll be different. He'll oh, he'll be, be different. He'll be more the, yeah. more the neocon. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a fascinating... Everything was... Suspended and and happier, but everything, every <laughs> those years, everyone, everything was good, but nobody was happy. <laughs> right. But they didn't know in the, in the Dostoevsky sense that they were enjoying their unhappiness. That was the thing they enjoyed the most. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. He's very Dostoevsky in his way. I remember him getting elected. I was pissed. Uh huh. I remember being screaming at the top of my lungs. And I, the next day I drove and I chased down this, this rich guy in a Mercedes Benz. And I, I chased him for a couple of miles in my car. <laughs> I shouldn't be telling this story. <laughs> Just an object of yeah. opulence and what I perceive to be, right? You know, the excesses of capitalism. And yeah, I chased him and then I threatened him. Wow. For my yeah. Wow. I didn't. I probably shouldn't have said that. I didn't do anything. I was. But I was, was like, different, oh. I was at a different. Oh, I was at a different. interesting. <laughs> I was at a different <laughs> political moment. I had hated the liberal consensus so long. I thought, yeah. well, maybe something will happen here. Yeah. I was weirdly um, uh, intrigued. Oh yeah. I probably shouldn't confess that. But <laughs> hey, you know, Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> Donald Trump, come on the pod. Come on the pod. <laughs> We don't, we don't, uh, we don't hate you like the MSNBC liberals hate you. No. In fact, <laughs> we think you're funny. <laughs> um, so what about, I guess I want to hear your thoughts on, on what would you call it? Russia, Russia So like separating the Russian people from the Russian government. And then the history of Russian culture. I mean, I hear about tea houses getting windows smashed and yeah. people banning Russian authors. And and what have you read about, or what are your thoughts on this Russia phobia? What's the what's the correct ethical and I guess spiritual stance to kind of have in this moment? Yeah. So I I think well, number one, I I doubt the practical wisdom of the idea that punishing the Russian people is going to lead them to revolt. I think it might just consolidate them behind, you know, out of fear or or hatred behind their leaders. I think that's one possibility. Uh, as far as Russophobia in America, I think there's this thing where a certain type of liberal has convinced dare I say, herself, that she has no hatred in her, um, that she's, you know, extirpated this feeling or is in the, uh, you know, the un, un, the unending and ongoing process of unlearning her white fragility or something. Um, All are respected here. Yeah. And, of course, this is probably unrealistic for the perverse human psyche. And so the minute there's an approved target who's nominally white you see this eruption of of hatred and of othering and of oh. and of violence and i think that number 1 i think it's wrong to but say but this that, is white on white crime baby <laughs> right i think it's wrong to say that russia has been white in the western imagination i think uh there's always been this i mean there's a there's a classic thing where i think zizek talks about this in one of his books which is every point in europe is said by the person West of it to right, be where yeah, the Orient begins. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is Europe. No, this yeah, is Europe. I mean, it starts in uh, it starts it's Serbia. No, it's Bosnia. No, it's uh, and then eventually you get to well, the Orient starts in France. Like yeah. you know, um, so there's this persistent desire to find the Eastern Southern right. other, and I think the, I think Russia has often played that role. But what I th what I find this is where maybe we can end where we began um, with Kotsia's tribute to the Russian novelists. Um, 
I don't, you know, there's been people who say of the Ukrainians, uh, I think Prince, uh, one of these fucking English princes said the other day, well, it's so strange to see this in Europe. And, you know, you don't want to sound like a person like that. But maybe unlike some of America's other geopolitical rivals in the world, whether that be uh, political Islam or China, um, Russian culture has had a massive influence on our culture. When you think about the post-World War II American writers, mm-hmm. whether it's Ralph Ellison or Saul Bellow or Flannery O'Connor, up to Joyce Carol Oates and Toni Morrison, they, David Foster Wallace, George Saunders, they've mm-hmm. all paid tribute to Russian writers. Um, they've all paid tribute to Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and Chekhov. And so I think that sort of canceling what is pragmatically part of our cultural heritage is particularly sort of perverse and plays into the hands of some Russian nationalist, imperialist, exclusivist definition of Russia as the absolute other of the West. Well, this is another example of people not reading their Milton. Mm-hmm. Say more. <laughs> Not a Russian novelist, to my <laughs> to my recollection. <laughs> and and the, a professor to go unnamed at the University of Minnesota, who can dance the do the dance and play the politics and and all that's going on in the academy right now, <laughs> with different interests. Mm-hmm. Um, and he he could play both sides, but he admitted to me or confessed to me, confided in me at the end of our time together. It was my final class. Because I had been taking studying Milton with, with uh, David Haley before. God bless David Haley. If you're out there, David Haley, man, I'd love to get coffee sometime. Yeah, come on the pot. I took your Milton oh, class in 2007. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> we wouldn't get a word in. <laughs> he probably doesn't remember me at all. <laughs> Who knows? He remembers quite a bit. Uh, but this, yeah, talking to this professor who's a real, a real sort of company man. So. But he said, and he knew I was taking Milton, mm-hmm. and he said, because I, I had had some um, debates with with a, a real progressive in the class about T.S. Eliot, and as if someone sh- would want to spend a whole semester ripping on an individual artist's character and that be the sole like contribution or intellectual effort that they make. Yeah. It seems like a waste of, that's <laughs> the biggest problem I have with it, by the way, mm. is that it's easy and there's no exertion. Right. Um, that seems not right. And so I had debates with her and, and then at the end of the class, he, he confided in me and he said, this is a guy that plays both sides. He said, um, Milton was right. We should never have departed from Areopagitica in his his idea that in a in a true civil society, no viewpoints are sen- censored, no licenses to a printing press are denied, and that the true mark of a strong and virtuous individual is the ability to take in multiple perspectives and points of view and to abstain from the ones that are false and to consider and pursue the ones that are true. Yeah. And then if you lose that basic consensus in a school, in a country, or in a world, that is fucking wicked. Yeah. And that's the best part of democracy. Mm-hmm. And it's a, and, and it's what makes it make it, it's what makes us be so mature 
it makes us mature and then it makes us correct because we can correct things as we go along and have clashing, colliding ideologies and pick the one which prevails. In an authoritarian system, they don't have that, those corrective mechanisms. Right. Because you could have 15 people bringing just good news to the leader, to Putin, and there's no way – because they don't want to bring bad news. Yeah. So there's no way of these – that's our greatest strength. Mm-hmm. And that comes straight out of Milton and the First Republic and all that stuff. And the idea that we would like sacrifice that now or we would lose faith in that. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> he said that. He said Milton – we never should have ignored Milton. Mm-hmm. He said that. Yeah, but he would he say that in public? He wouldn't say it in public. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I know. That's where that's where, you know, that's when you begin to wonder if liberals have spines. Yeah. Well, that's the that's the paradox of liberalism is that that willingness to confront all sides becomes the inability to stand up for a solid principle. So should we have any solid principles going into this? These this ongoing what you're describing with it's a very complicated situation, but are there any solid principles that you would recommend or you work with as you write and analyze this stuff? Yeah, I would I would say beware of creating these um, sort of cartoonish images of the enemy. Um, I would say if somebody says something you disagree with, you're Reply should be the explanation of why it's wrong, not the ad hominem accusation that you're the stooge of Putin or how do you how do you cash those rubles or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so those would be the, the the big two. Don't fall into some caricatural image of simplistic good versus evil, and don't resort as your first move to an ad hominem argument. But then, what about any others? Any other things that? Because you're writing about, you're you're, it's brave, man. But you're writing about heavy shit. Yeah. And you're not taking a popular, easy stance on it. And it would be easy for someone who's very, and a lot of people are. I think, I think one of the premier propagandists said the other day, um, people and with this su- support for war in Ukraine, um, they're what did he say? It's it's faulty analysis on a foundation of pure emotion. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, there is I mean, I think that I, I, I am worried about the way that this has just slotted right into the moral panic of the moment. So we had the racial reckoning, we had the coronavirus, and now we have the Ukraine war and a certain type of bourgeois sentimentality it gets grafted onto that so everybody puts the mm-hmm. flag in their profile just as everybody wore a mask in their profile picture and posted a black square on instagram um, and it becomes this tide of emotion so that even the truth and you know you describe my stance as unpopular but my stance is not uh, in any way uh I don't deny in any way the the aggression of Russia, the the injustice of their invasion and their act. Uh, I'm just sort of trying to critically analyze what our own response has been and the way in which it's self-undermining. So the things that are happening, um, this response that 
that that concerns you and what's like uh what are some midterm and <laughs> no pun intended <laughs> but midterm and long-term consequences of that if it goes wrong or what what could we lose what could it develop into why does it make us weaker and less resilient well first would be that sort of mccarthyist you know sensibility descending where dissent isn't allowed and if there's all sorts of ways in which the policy can go wrong um on both sides of you know complete abandonment of Ukraine, which I wouldn't uh, put past anybody, uh, to mindless escalation of the war. So you need to have some kind of flexibility of of response. And then as if it goes on to, to a full Cold War situation, one of the things I've been worried about that I've been posting about that people might find a bit risque is I've been paying attention to what some of the white supremacists have been doing. Um, for mm-hmm. example, Richard Spencer, the so-called founder of the alt-right. Yeah, how much power does he have, really? Well, I don't know. I'm on the outside. That's I don't an open know. Question. But there's a clique around him, and there's a couple of these guys, Richard Spencer, Charles C. Johnson, um, who were openly white supremacist Trump supporters five, six years ago, and who have now endorsed the Biden administration, the Democratic Party. And they have a couple different motives, stated motives. I don't know what they're internal motives are, but their stated motives are two things. One is, well, fighting against Russia, this, you know, oriental horde, uh, mm-hmm. will strengthen Europe and pan-European identity. And then the other thing that seems to motivate them domestically is what it gives every appearance of being a swing toward the Republicans of particularly the Hispanic vote. And so now Trump stands revealed as the the master of uh, of uh, the swarthy brown masses that the white supremacist wants the to have. The construction abject. workers. Yeah. The kitchen workers. R- right. And so I, I, this is a distant prospect. It might seem a little far-fetched now. There's stranger things have happened. <laughs> but uh, I do worry about this kind of like new progressive racism because there always was progressive racism, especially a hundred years ago, the eugenic movement. That's fascinating. And you know, that <laughs> I was with John, with John, you're going to get, you're going to get insights that are maybe two, three years ahead of, of where it's moving. So I mean, I hope I'm wrong on this one, but <laughs> I see a I see a few signs. Yeah. So, so stay posted, and and we'll keep doing the dirty work. <laughs>